few weeks ago, I was zocher to have Shalom Tzvi Shafir over in my home, and we had a Shabbos guest. And I had heard many years about the, uh, the Shmuz reaching out and helping out thousands of people across the world, hearing the Shurim, growing from the Shurim, becoming better of the Hashem because of the Shurim. And um, we had another Shabbos guest at the table who became a little starstruck when he played Jewish geography and discovered Shalom Tzvi's uncle was no less than Rabbi Ben Sion Shafir of the Shmuz. And uh, as soon as I heard that, I, and I heard he was coming, uh, his, uh, Shalom Tzvi's uh, sister got married this week, Mazel Tov. I said, let's take advantage of the opportunity. And what an important time. Right now it's Rosh Chodesh Adar. I'm telling you, now is the last run to make sure to take advantage of your time before the, the Bein Azman and Pesach break. You have a month left, you have Adar, I know. There's perm excitement in, the, in there, but we have to make the most to take advantage of our time and learn and full sadarim and really uh, make the most of our time. So who better than to give us chizik for Rosh Chodesh Adar right now? We have Rabbi Sheikh here, please. What I'd like to share with you guys this evening is what I consider two of the success principles for life. These are principles that you'll find in any successful individual. Find a person who makes it, obviously in learning and ruchnius, but find me a person who makes it in academics, find me a person who makes it in arts, find me a person who becomes a successful athlete, creates a new industry. Find me a successful human being, I guarantee they had these two principles firmly entrenched in their <coughs> essence. And find me a person with all of the talents, all of the abilities, but if they don't have these two principles in their essence, I guarantee they will not become a fraction of what they could have been. And to share with you these two principles, let's begin with the first one, we'll start with the Chazal. Because I'll tell us that when a person's done his job here, we all stand in front of Hashem, and the very first question that they ask is, I give you a Torah which was a directive, I give you a Torah which showed you exactly what to do, how to live your life, and I gave you a Torah that was a spiritual nourishment that gave you the strength. Why don't you learn it? Why weren't you osik in it? Why don't you involve yourself in it? And each person has his litany of excuses, his stories, his what-ups, would-ups, could-ups, and should-ups. And the Gemara tells us, Aniva usher bar din. A poor man and a rich man come to the din. And they ask the Ani, Nu, they malo the Torah. Why didn't you involve yourself in Torah study? Me. I was a poor man. 14 hours a day I had to work. Six days a week. Of course I would have loved to learn. What do you want from me? And the Gemara says, they say an answer to the Ani. And the answer is, Klum Ani Ayisa Yosem You were no more poor than was Hillel. And then the Gemara goes on to tell us one of the events in Hillel's life. When Hillel was already a Zokin Biestrol, he was already a known figure in the client's role, he used to earn his daily keep by going into the woods and gathering twigs. He would sell these twigs door to door and earn a tarpik. A tarpik was then the smallest coin in the land. Every day Hillel would go into the woods, every day he'd gather wood, sell it. Half of that money he would use to pay his household expenses, half of that money he would use to pay the Shomer based medrash. In those days, the base medrash was out in the woods, and there was a shomer, a guardsman, who protected the Jews learning there. <clears throat> Every day, Hillel would gather the wood. Every day, Hillel would pay the guardsman. One Arab Shabbos, Tavis, wintertime. Apparently, Hillel didn't have time to gather the wood, didn't have time to earn the tarpik. He comes to the guard and says, Sir, every day I gladly pay you, and every day I'm here. Today, I didn't have a chance to earn the money. Please let me in. The guard says, No, please, no, please, no, no. And says, Hillel, I can't leave Divir Lakim Chaim. He goes to the side of the base medrash, climbs up, and he listens to the Shia from the Aruba from the skylight. Now it's not clear what happened. Either he fell asleep or he lost consciousness. But the next morning, Shmaya turns to Avitalian and says, 
Ma'orah, it's, it's dark. They look up in the Aruba and they see the figure of a man covered by mounds and mounds of snow. Shemai says, quickly, run, run, get him down, get him down. <clears throat> Send someone up, pull him down, light a fire, resuscitate him. And when the Ani says, I would have loved to have learned, but how could I have done it? They say, Klum Ani Ayisa Yosem You were no more poor than when it was Hillel. Hillel could do it, so too could you. And then Inu walks in the usher. And they say to him, Inu, what's your excuse? What's your story? Me. I had 700 men in my employ. The entire town came to me with problems, issues. You wanted me to be Osik Betorah? And they say an answer to him as well. And where it tells us the answer that they say to the usher is, Klum usher, you say, Yosem Rebelozabarcharsam. You were no more wealthy than was Rebelozabarcharsam. And then the Gemara goes on to tell us the events of Rebelozabarcharsam's life. Rebelozabarcharsam was a singular masmid, totally, completely engrossed in Torah to the exclusion of anything else. His father was a wealthy businessman. His father owned land. In those days, if you owned land, you were the landlord, the baron, you set the taxes, you made the laws. His father owned a thousand cities, the type of wealth that doesn't exist in our world. When his father died, all of that wealth, a king's wealth, <clears throat> was left to Rebbe Lezbar in a heartbeat. He went from being a regular man to one of the wealthiest men who had lived in generations. And he didn't change an iota. Same dedication to learning, same tremendous iron focus. And when the rich man says, I would have loved to, but I, how could I? They say, Klum Asher Hayusa Yosim Rebbe You were no more wealthy than was Rebbe Lezbar Harsom. Gemara concludes, and that's the Gemara. I learned in Yeshiva Chavetzchaim, I heard my Rebbe, the Reliwitz Atzal, ask a question on this Gemara. The question has two sides to it. The first side goes like this. If I stand in front of you now, I may say words that are truthful, and they may not be truthful, but you won't know. You could hear my words, you could look at my body language, but you can't tell what I'm thinking inside. If you know anyone who's ever bought a used car... You know that not every word that every human being says is exactly Torah Semis. But the reason for that is, is because you can't see what I'm thinking. You can't see what I'm feeling. But here's the problem. This Gemara is not discussing you and I. It's not discussing here. It's when my body's put in the ground, I separate and I stand in front of Hashem. So here's question number one. What does Hashem need Hillel for? Look, if Hillel could have done it, so too could you, Mr. Poor Man. Hashem is a very fine bochen. Hashem should peer into the essence of the onion and say, I created you, I fashioned you, I made you. I knew what you could have done, I knew what you could not have done. What does Hashem need Hillel? Oh, if Hillel could have done it, so too could have you. Hashem doesn't need a scale of comparison. But question number two is a bit more pointed. They say in the name of the Groh that the most painful moment in a person's life is not that fatal car crash, not the hearing of the shearing metal crash of glass, and not even when you recognize the Tzala guy is pulling that sheet over your body. And not even at your own funeral. Not even when you hear the people gather to say those things they say. They say in the name of the Groh, the most painful moment in a person's life is when I leave this body and I stand in front of the Basin Shamala and they hold up this picture. This picture of this great human being, this Adam Gadol, Tamar Chacham, Tzadik. And they say to me, why don't you become that? Me? You want me to be that great? What do you want from me? And they say in the name of the Groh that the most painful words a human being will ever hear are the words, that is you. That is you had you lived up to your potential. That is you had you actualized what you had within you. 
That is you had you become what you were destined to be. But gentlemen, the picture that I'm compared to is a picture of me. I'm not compared to you. You're not compared to him. None of us are compared to Tzadikim who lived hundreds of years ago. Each of us were given different strength, different talents, put into a different generation, put into a very particular birth order, put into a particular family in a particular time, and each of us are given different strengths, different talents, and each of us are asked one question. How much of you did you become? 80%, 60%, 40%, but I'm not asked to be you, and you're not asked to be me. So if question number one is that Hashem doesn't need Hillel, although Hillel could do it, so could you. Question number two is Hillel is the wrong scale of comparison. What difference does it make? One time in history there was a great person called Hillel. The Uni has a different destiny. The Uni has a different set of talents and strengths, and the Uni is not asked to become Hillel. So question number one is we don't need Hillel. <clears throat> question number two is Hillel is the wrong scale of measure. And to answer this question, I'd like to share with you an observation. If you go to Asia today, you'll still find much of the heavy lifting on parts of that continent are still done by the elephant. Mighty behemoth. All day long, the trainer kind of leaves it on a rope, and the elephant trudges through the jungle on its back of the heavy loads, and its trunk will be logs all rolled up, and all day long, the elephant trudges, all day long, the elephant schleps. At night, the trainer ties the elephant to a peg in the ground, and the elephant remains rooted right there. Now, if you were looking at the scene, you might ask the question, the elephant is huge. The peg is not that deep. The rope isn't that strong. The question you might ask is, why doesn't the elephant just walk away? Why doesn't it escape, go into the jungle, eat, forage, do what it wants? And the answer is that the elephant can't escape. Why? <clears throat> because when the elephant is born, it weighs about 250 pounds, and the baby elephant tries to escape, but it can't, because at that age, the peg is too deep, the rope is too strong. It tries day one, tries for a week, tries for a month, and then it learns a lesson. The peg is too deep, the rope is too strong, and that lesson remains fixed in its mind throughout its life. Even when it reaches full maturation, when it weighs 14,000 pounds, when it can plow through a cement wall like it's paper, it remains rooted to that spot because in its limited understanding, there's a glass ceiling. It can't do it. Many, many people that you will meet in life, I believe, do not become a fraction of what they could have been. Not because they don't have talents, not because they don't have capacity, but because they have these limiting beliefs, these glass ceilings. What do you want from me? I'm an average guy, a regular person. You want me to be great? You want me to aspire to things? You want me to set goals? I'm just a regular, plain, vanilla guy. So here's my little observation. If you sincerely believe about yourself that you're plain vanilla, you will live up to exactly that self-prophecy. And many, many people don't become a fraction of what they could have been because they have these glass ceilings that hold them in check. And like that mighty elephant that has so much strength but has a limiting belief, many, many people have limiting beliefs that keep them in check. And every once in a while you hear about someone who shatters a limiting belief. Let me share with you one from competitive sports. For almost 100 years, there was a record in competitive sports that was considered unbreakable. No human being had ever, in the history of mankind, run a mile in under four minutes. Athlete after athlete tried, country after country sent their best, it became a cause celebrated internationally. Could a human being run a mile in under four minutes? 1912, Gunga Hagen ran the mile in four minutes and ten seconds. <clears throat> Carpenter, an American fellow, 12 years later ran it in four minutes and six seconds. No one could break the four-minute mile. Men began postulating all kinds of theories. Man's skeletal structures are wrong. He creates so much wind resistance. It became an accepted medical fact that no human being could possibly run the mile 
in under four minutes. John Landy, an Australian fellow, ran the mile in four minutes and two seconds four times in a row. And he said the words, it's a brick wall, can't be penetrated. May 5th, 1954, Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. That impenetrable barrier, he ran a mile in under four minutes. Oddly enough, 47 days later, John Landy, Australian fellow, four minutes, two seconds, brick wall, ran the mile faster than did Roger Bannister. Odder still, within one year's time, 32 other runners had run the mile in under four minutes. But here was the strangest part. Nothing changed. They didn't change diet, didn't change technique, didn't change running shoes. The only thing that changed was Roger Bannister took something from the realm of impossible and he showed it could be done, then John Landy could, then for the two other runners now, any international track star runs the mile in under four minutes. But it took one human being to shatter that myth, to break that glass ceiling, and once he shattered it, then anybody could follow suit. But gentlemen, make no mistake, this is not the story of super athletes. I'll show you an example of limiting beliefs and shattering them a lot closer to home, a lot more pedestrian. In 1997 in Tallahassee, Tallahassee, Florida, a young boy was involved in a car accident. The EMTs came rushing to the scene, ambulances were there, they surrounded him, but they couldn't help the boy. Why? See, his arm was pinned under the wheel of a car. They needed to get him to a hospital, but the car wheel was literally right on top of his arm, and all discussion, get a crane, get heavy machinery, what do they do? A bystander sees what's happening, doesn't consult, doesn't say a word, rushes over to the fender of the car, bends down, lifts up the car, take the boy, put him to an ambulance, ship him off to the hospital, patch him up, he's good to go. This story became a media sensation. Almost every newspaper in the United States of America ran this story. Why? Because the bystander wasn't some burly muscle man, some trained lifter. The bystander was the boy's 63-year-old grandmother who saw her grandson under the wheel of the car, <clears throat> lifted the car, and freed her grandson. Okay. Now, Dr. Charles Garfield is a psych- psychiatrist, and he, he wrote a book. He actually spent 20 years of his life studying athletes. The book is called Peak Performance, and I read the book. He describes athletes who do things that you and I would say are physically impossible to be done. They can't be done. He describes athletes running for 24 hours straight. Athletes lifting 1,200-pound boulders. After spending 20 years of his life, he wrote this book, and he says, when he read this story in the newspaper, he said, I must interview this woman. I have to get her story. The world can learn something from it. And he describes that he called her up, explained to her who he was, why he wanted to meet with her, and he says she flatly refused. He called a second time, again, explaining who he was, why he wanted to meet with her, and she refused. He tried a third time. Again, she refused. Three months later, the fourth time, his last attempt, he called her up again, explained why he wanted to meet with her. Finally, she agreed to an interview. Now, he describes when he got to, his, to her house, <clears throat> she was reasonably friendly, welcomed him in, offered him a cup of coffee. He sat down and said, Madam, I want you to share with me your experience. Just a flow of consciousness. What were you thinking? What were you, what were you going through? What was passing through your conscious mind at the time? And he says that she was very graphic, very descriptive, and when she was done, he looked at her and said, I don't get this. I don't understand this. Not the lifting of the car. That part doesn't bother me. What I don't understand is your reluctance to share your story. It's clear that you don't want anyone to know this, but I don't get it. What you did was heroic. You saved your grandson's life. Why wouldn't you want the whole world to know about it? And he says that she turned to him and she said these words. 
If this, which I knew was impossible, I really could do, what does it say about the rest of my life? He asked her, what do you mean? She explained she always dreamt about being a teacher. She never got beyond a high school education. So with Dr. Charles Garfield's coaching, Mrs. Laura Schultz began her college education at the age of 63 and went on to teach college-level science. But here's a punchline. In the world that you and I live in, grandmas don't live cars. In the world that you and I occupy, the boys stay stuck until they get some heavy machinery, some crane, because grandmas can't do that. Until a grandmother sees that it's her grandson. Until a grandmother sees that if she doesn't do it, it won't happen, and she rushes over martial strength she couldn't envision, taps energy she never could even think about, and does that which she knows was impossible, she shatters a limiting belief. And I heard my Rebbe, the Roshiva Zasal, explain this Gemara that way. The Ani is not asked, why didn't you become Hillel? The Ani is asked, why didn't you become you? And if you think it was difficult, you had a hero. You had a man who broke through that limiting belief. A man in your generation was as poor as you, and he became what he could have been. <clears throat> why didn't you put him up on your mantelpiece? Why didn't you use him as a model? Why didn't you say to yourself, if he could do it, so too could I? The poor man is asked to become the poor man, but Hillel is Machayavim because Hillel shattered the limiting belief. He was the Roger Bannister of your generation. He proved that it could be done. Why didn't you use him as a hero? And the rich man is not asked to be Rebbe Kharsam. The rich man is asked, why don't you use him as a hero? And my friends, that is the first rule, the first rule of success in life. You have to have powerful, powerful goals, aspirations, drives, and you have to have heroes. You have to have have people who are better than you, maybe older than you, many different areas, and you have to say to yourself these words, if he can do it, why not I? He walks the same earth as I, breathes the same air. If he can succeed, why can't I? But not why can't I become him? Why can't I become me? Why can't I grow? Why can't I accomplish? Why can't I become that which I was destined to be? And that is the first rule of success in life. You have to have very lofty, demanding goals, and you have to have heroes. You have to have motivation. You have to have people you look up to, people who made it, and you say to yourself, if they can do it, so too I can do it. I can become me. However, if you have the first rule of success in life firmly entrenched, and you don't have the second one, I guarantee you're going to fail. What's the second rule of success in life? So to understand that, well, let me take you to a different stage in my life. <coughs> when I was about 23, I was again learning Yeshiva Chavetz Chaim, and Chavetz Chaim is a Musa Yeshiva, and the Yeshiva Zetzal used to stress Musa Chaburiz. In Musa Chaburiz, a group of fellows usually about the same age, same level of learning, and each week one of the fellows would produce a Kiddush. It might be from a Chazal, it might be from a Musa Sefer, the idea is a Kiddush in Musr, a Kiddush maybe in Amuna, maybe in Midos. <clears throat> he would produce a Kiddush, and then we discuss it as a group, discuss whether it's right or wrong, and then discuss how to apply it to our lives. In any case, I was invited to join a very exclusive group, and these were very serious guys. First week, someone produces a brilliant Kiddush from a Gemara, and we discussed it back and forth. Next week, someone brings in a Musa Sefer, again, a beautiful, beautiful concept, and we discussed it as a group. Third week, someone brings in a Dazakadian Balitosis, again, wonderful idea, and we discuss it. Fourth week was my turn to present. But I walked into the room. I wasn't carrying a Gemara, nor a Musa Sefer, nor a Chumash. I walked in carrying a picture sports book. Now, these guys were pretty serious, and I got some pretty serious looks, as in Schaefer, what's with a picture sports book? So I took the picture sports book, and I opened it, opened it to the center section, and there you saw Muhammad Ali holding up the heavyweight championship belt. Those serious looks turned pretty dirty, as in Schaefer, what do you want? I said, uh-uh. 
Tell me what you see. All right, we get it. Frazier been the world champion. Ali just won the fight. What do you want? I said, exactly. When you look at that picture, what do you see? You see victory. You see glory. What you don't see is that Muhammad Ali was driven directly from that fight to the hospital. You read about his moment of glory, and you see him at his heights, but you don't see the pain that he went through. When you read about the world champion, you don't read about the fact that he got so beat up in the fight that he couldn't get out of his hospital bed for three weeks. 21 days after that fight, he was this way, not this way. But that's not the part you read about in the sports section. You read about his glory, you read about his victory, but you don't read about the amount of pain he went through to get there. And what I wanted to share with my friends that day was the second rule of success in life. And that is you've got to know how to take a punch. Because I don't care how much talent you have. I don't care how much capacity you have. I don't care how good you are. You're going to win some, you're going to lose some. If you set lofty, demanding goals, there are going to be some that you hit and some that you don't. But I guarantee you're going to get knocked down. And if you don't have the ability to pick yourself up and put yourself back into the fight time after time, you won't become a fraction of what you could have been. Now, I was a... Um, anyone box? Anyone box? I used to have a little Shalom Bias problem. My wife started taking kickboxing. Solved all my Shalom Bias problems. I hate all right, anyway. Okay. No one box. All right, listen. I've done some clever things in my life. I'll be honest with you. I did some clever things. I've done some things that are not so clever. And I've done some things that are pretty right down dumb. When I was 18, I spent about six months in a boxing gym. And I learned many, many lessons there. One lesson I learned was that every single fighter, every semi-pro and every professional fighter has one thing in common. Anyone know what that is? I'm sorry? Every single semi-pro or pro has this one thing in common. They are all ugly. Ugly. Now, I'll explain to you why. You get hit, you get smashed. You get... <clears throat> the human face was not designed to be a punching bag. I don't care what you look like when you started in the gym. After six years of pummeling, you just don't look the same. And every single fighter bears the scars. In professional boxing, there was only one clean fighter, Muhammad Ali. Floating like a butterfly, spinning like a bee. You could watch the punches come. He ducked, he slipped. He never got hit. Pretty Boy Ali had the cleanest face in boxing. Pretty Boy Ali once estimated that in his professional fighting career, he got hit in the head at least one million times. That means at least one million times some 220-pound chayera smashed him full force in the jaw. That's Pretty Boy Ali, the cleanest fighter in boxing. And what I wanted to share with my friends that day was the fact that you got to know how to take a punch. you got to know how to get knocked down, pick yourself back up, because I don't care how much talent you have. If you don't have that capacity, you'll never su- succeed. And gentlemen, make no mistake, this is not about rough-and-tumble combat sports. Here, I'll give you an example. What's the most feminine of competitive sports? Most feminine of competitive sports. Anyone? Tennis. Tennis? Shopping is not a competitive sport. <laughs> Volleyball? Okay. I have four daughters, and um, a number of them skate. I think figure skating. You know, you put in the leotard, you spin. I think it's the most feminine of competitive sports. Okay. Anyway, the reason I say that is because coaches have one criteria to determine whether a girl has it within her to become an, an elite athlete. And you know what that criteria is? How many times she's willing to fall and pick herself back up. And coaches explain why. And they teach you to do jump, you go home and you practice. You jump and you spin, you jump and you spin. If you miss, catch yourself on the carpet, not a big deal. And even the first couple times on the ice, it's not a big deal. 
Coach puts on a harness, you jump and you spin, you jump and you spin, you miss, the harness catches you. <clears throat> but it's when the coach takes off the harness and says, go out there. And it's only those athletes who push themselves all the way, even though they know likely they're going to fall, it's only those that reach their potential. 2006 <clears throat> gold medal was won by a young Japanese girl. Her coach <clears throat> estimates she began skating at the age of six. At the age of 16, when she won the gold, her coach estimates that she fell between the age of six and 16 at least 20,000 times. Ten times a skating session, twice a day, six days a week, week after week, month after month, year after year. And you know why most people don't make it? Because they try, and they try a lot, and they try again, but then they fall, and they fall again, and they fall again, and eventually there's a voice in their head that says, cut it out, you fell, you fell again, you don't got what it takes, you're not made for this stuff. They hang up their skates, they quit, and they're done. And it's only those athletes that can persevere, can push themselves even more, fall, brush themselves up, and get up off the ice and go back into that game. It's only those that make their potential. And gentlemen, this is the second rule of success in life. You have to know how to take a punch, you're going to fall down, and get back up. And I want to share with you, this is not, again, this is not about boxing or ice skating or sports. It's about success in any endeavor in life. And I'll show you how far this goes. I want to share with you a quote. And after I say the quote, I'll ask you who said it. Ready? Here's the quote. Success consists of going from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. One more time. <clears throat> success consists of going from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. Who said it? Did you listen to the schmooze? Give that man a cigar. <laughs> the second time in history that anyone guessed that right. So let me tell you who said the quote. The man who said the quote was a college professor. The man who said the quote was a historian. The man who said the quote was a world statesman. The man who said the quote was knighted by the Queen of England. The man who said the quote was also the Prime Minister of England. The man was Sir Winston Churchill. But I want to share with you who Sir Winston Churchill was. Historians credit Churchill with saving the free world. They say if not for his galvanizing force, the Allies would have lost. If you remember a little ancient history, 1933, when Hitler was elected Reich Chancellor, who was the Prime Minister? Chamberlain. Chamberlain's attitude was appeasement. Czechoslovakia, little Levinson, give him room, just don't antagonize him. And don't make a war. From the parliament floor, there was one sane voice, a lion that roared. Winston Churchill said, Adolf Hitler is a menace to mankind, a menace to the human race. No one listened. It wasn't until the war began, it wasn't until years later when he was elected prime minister, and historians say, if not for his galvanizing force of personality, the Allies would have lost the war. May 1945, Germany surrendered. July 1945, Elections in England, and Winston Churchill found himself voted out of office. A great wartime prime minister. He's a peacetime, and we need a different kind of leader. After bringing England to its finest hour, after saving the free world, he found himself unemployed, on the streets, without a job. He went on to fight communism, went on to write that six treaties work that won him the Nobel Prize, but that was his life. Success consists of going from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. And that is the second principle of success in life. Now, why do I share this with you, gentlemen? You will not, most likely, will not be called upon to be the Prime Minister of England. You also, most likely, will not be a uh, woman figure skater. 
You probably won't even win the heavyweight championship uh, <clears throat> belt in boxing. But I'd like to share with you something very profound. When Hashem took you from under the Kisei HaKavod and put you into this world, it was for a very particular reason. The single greatest disease of the 21st century is whatever. 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 When I was a kid growing up, I don't remember a 20-year-old. I don't remember a 20-year-old without dreams, aspirations. He was either going to be a huge Tamachachim, cure cancer, make millions of dollars. Anyone I grew up with had very real goals, ambitions. Ask the average 20-year-old today, what do, you, what do you dream about? What do you aspire to? I don't know, whatever, you know. Whatever. No, but what, do you, what gets you up in the morning? What do, you, what do you want to accomplish? I don't know, you know, make some money, spend the money, make some more money, get married, some kids, make some money, spend the money, and we die. You know, whatever. So let me share with you that eye-opener. I do not believe that God took you from under the throne of glory, found you the perfect family, the perfect generation, the perfect temperament, said, go out there, ford those streams, climb those mountains, become the great person, and whatever, after you're done, you know, whatever, you did good, you didn't do good, you accomplished, you didn't accomplish, whatever, it's all good, we'll all be angels in white, dancing together. I don't believe it. I don't believe it at all. And the greatest disease of the 21st century is whatever. And the reason why it's the greatest disease is because it saps the energy out of you. And if you don't have goals, if you don't have dreams, if you don't have aspirations, you will live up to exactly what you think about, which is whatever. And the reason I say that to you now is because typically I speak to older audiences. And one of my greatest frustrations is that if I do a really good job, I know I lost. Why? Because let's say I motivate somebody. Let's say I really get them. They are so asuk, so busy, the life today is busy 25-7, like eight days a week also probably, I don't know how that could be. But the busyness and the incredible overload is so profound that very few people have any time to actually change, grow, and accomplish. You guys are at a stage in life where you can make radical differences in who you will be for eternity. Who you will be as a father, who you will be as a husband, who you will be as a human being can radically change within the next number of years. And largely, it's determined by some choices that you have to make. Choice one, if you're in Shana Aleph, do you come back for Shana Bet or not? Come on, you could, you could not, you do. What's the difference, really? The difference is profound. Study the results. Look at the guys who come back for a second year versus the guys who come back, come on, I'm stark, I'm okay, I'm all right. Watch what happens. And, and by the way, it's also if you're in Shana Bet or Shana Aleph, and where, where are you going next year? You know, there's a, I have, um, I was introduced to this fine yeshiva by my nephews, who are proud products, and I'm quite proud of them, of Yeshiva University. And I've got to tell you, there's some phenomenal, phenomenal young men I've seen in YU. And if you'd like to know what an assignment in life is, it's probably true. It is probably correct that you'll get a better education at Princeton than you get at YU. But I guarantee you won't be the same human being. If you look at these guys in YU, they're stellar. They're giants. And it's not that the giants now, they set a track for life. You see, who you begin your life at, basically that's the track you're going to follow. And if your trajectory is towards the stars, likely that's where you're going to end up. And if your trajectory is whatever, I'm going through the same paces. I'll make some money, I'll get a lot of money, I'll get myself a good education, get myself a good job. First of all, your good education ain't going to guarantee you no good job today. But even if it did, and even if I'm going to grant you that you'll get a better education, the question is you as a human being, you as a person, and I'll tell you one more thing. I've never met a guy in my life 
who said, oh, drat, I spent the past four years learning, growing, accomplishing, changing who I'll be forever. Drat, I wasted time. I never met a guy ever who said that. So what I'm saying to you guys is you have the potential now to make major, major changes in your life, which most people don't have. Your path in life will be largely set by choices that you make. You can set your path this way or whatever, and that choice is up to you. And it's not just major choices, it's every day also. <clears throat> because it's every day in the base medrash, every day in davening, every day in the way you act with every other human being in the dorm, how you speak to people. Because at the end of the day, every action, every word that I speak, everything makes a permanent imprint on me. I become a compilation of all of my interactions, all of my thoughts become me. And for eternity, I am what I shape myself into. I think this Gemara shares with us a profound concept. And that concept is, the Ani is asked a penetrating question. Why didn't you become you? Why didn't I become me? I was too busy. 14 hours a day, working, long, six days a week. What do you want from me? I couldn't have done it. And they say one thing. I gave you a Torah. Shem says, I gave you a Torah with the directives, with the mission. I gave you a Torah that gave you the spiritual energy. You couldn't have learned it. Hillel did it. If Hillel did it, so too could you. Not could you have been Hillel. You should have put Hillel up on your mantelpiece. And you should have said to yourself, if he could do it, so too could I do it. I could become me. You should have used him as a hero. The Oni is asked, why don't you become Hillel? Not why don't you become Hillel. Why don't you use him as your model? The rich man is asked, why don't you use Rebbe Lozabachasim as your model? And those are the two rules of success in life. Number one, you have to have lofty, demanding goals. You can't wake up in the morning and say, whatever, whatever. I mean, you can, and most people do. And by the way, do this little social test over here. Ask some of your friends, especially if they're not in yeshiva, what are your goals in life? Find me a human being today who has written goals for life. I will by age such and such accomplish this. I will by age such and such do this. I will reach this level. And if you find me a person without goals, I guarantee you're finding a person who's not reaching a fraction of his potential. Because unless you're driven, unless you're focused, unless you have very clear goals, you're going to whatever throughout life. And you're never going to get there. And again, some of the decisions you make now are going to be life-altering, life-changing. But the opportunity is in front of you. And I want to close with one little observation. What happens to the elephant? What happens to the elephant when it discovers the secret that the peg is not deep enough, the rope isn't strong enough? It was 1944, Hartford, Connecticut, when Barnum and Bailey, which used to be the circus, you guys remember ancient history, there's a thing called the circus, Barnum and Bailey, when they were in business? Yeah, okay, anyway, I love the circus. Uh, anyway, they used to take the circus from town to town, first by rail, then by truck, and in those days they would put up this huge tent, and under this huge tent they had the three rings and the circus performers would do their act. In any case, they would coat the tent with paraffin. Paraffin is water repellent. But as you know, paraffin is also highly flammable. In any case, the tent is up, the crowd is gathered, the circus is on, and somehow the tent itself catches fire. Flames, smoke, pandemonium, people running, screaming. When it was all done, 121 people died. They finally put out the fire, and the circus crew began gathering what was left of the circus together. The trainer went looking for the elephants. Now, the elephants had been tied up at the time of the fire. They weren't in the act then. He went back to where they were supposed to be, and they were gone. Apparently, they had escaped. He took a bunch of guys with him, and they began searching. They searched, and they searched. About a mile down in the meadow, they found the small herd of elephants. The trainer took one rope, tied it to one elephant. He gave each of the guys another rope. They tied it, and they brought the small herd back to the camp. 
The elephant <clears throat> trainer tied up each of the elephants. He turned around and heard a noise. He turned back and he saw the elephants just walked away. Tied him back up. And no sooner did he tie them than they walked away again. Barnum and Bailey had to retire that entire herd. They had to bring in a whole new herd of elephants. You see, in the smoke, the fire, the elephants forgot the lesson. They escaped. And once they realized that the peg isn't deep enough, the rope isn't strong enough, they never could be tied again. They had to retire that entire herd, put them behind bars, because no longer could the rope hold them. Gentlemen, would you like to know the most intense, enjoyable experience you will ever have in this thing called life? It's when you set a demanding life goal. And you reach 80% of it, 60% of it. There's a sense of empowerment. There's a sense of wind in your sails. You realize there's more to me than what I see. There's more to me that I could reach. And you begin growing and you begin changing. You set higher goals and higher goals. And you know why that's the most enjoyable activity you'll ever experience? Because that's what God created you to do. Hashem put us into this world imperfect. <clears throat> Gave us the Torah and mitzvahs to perfect ourselves that's what we were created to do, to take this imperfect human being and perfect myself, to grow, to accomplish, to change the essence of me. And that is the most enjoyable experience you'll ever have. And I hate to end with a Muhammad Ali quote, but I can't resist. I'm sorry, I was a big Muhammad Ali fan as a kid growing up. Muhammad Ali said these words, I hated every minute of training. By the way, he used to sleep with his running shoes under the bed. Why? Because he knew if he'd get up in the morning and wouldn't see his running shoes there, he'd find an excuse not to run. So he put his running shoes under his bed at night, wake up and, oh, drafted it, all right. He said the words, I hated every minute of training, but I said, it's worth it to suffer now and be a champion the rest of my life. Wow. Worth it to suffer now to be a champion the rest of my life. Do you understand what the man said? The man said that he looked in the mirror and saw someone worthy. He looked in the mirror and saw two eyes looking back at him and said, I'm worth the fight. I'm worth the challenge. And even though it's going to require some energy, some real pain, I'm worth it because it's worth being what I can be the rest of my life. Gentlemen, learning Torah is not painful. It's beautiful. But that understanding, that growth requires some real energy, some real commitment, and sometimes some real pain as well. But it's worth it because who I am for eternity, I'm shaping during these years. I'm shaping during my life. I wish you all much, much atzlocha. I want to thank the Holy Shiva for inviting me, and I want to thank my nephews. Thank you.